Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. This is Zach Diamond. I am a middle school music teacher. I'm a Modern Classrooms mentor, and I've been implementing the model for three years now, going on three. Of course, I produce this podcast, and I am super excited tonight. This is our first sort of structured Q&A and feedback episode, and we have a ton of really awesome feedback that we've gotten from you all on the past few episodes uh, in January. So as you as you all know, our our season topic this month is self-pacing. So we've got a lot of really cool self-pacing feedback. So first of all, the the email that we've been getting has been great. I'm I, I'm I said this when we first mentioned that we're putting an email account together for the podcast, but I can't believe we didn't do this earlier. We've been getting tons of positive feedback, just little nice comments. And we really appreciate that. A bunch of you let me know when there was a little audio issue and I fixed that. So the email has been really cool for us. Tony Rose and I uh, look at that every week. We go through it. We see your comments. We see your questions. And uh, that's been great. So keep the email coming at podcast at modernclassrooms.org. In the email and also on social media, we've seen a bunch of really positive response to some of the episodes this month. So the episode with Evan, our CTE guest, Evan Jarrett, that was a great episode that I loved listening to as I edited. A lot of people really responded to his emphasis on building relationships, which is something that he talked about a lot. And in particular, people liked the idea of feeling like a family. Um, I saw one comment in the Modern Classroom Slack group that said something to the effect of, especially in elementary school, we spend sometimes more time with our students than we do with our families. And so it's important to really build those familial relationships. Um, we also have been ha- uh, getting a lot of positive feedback on the elementary emphasis that we're building in, which I'm really happy about. That was some feedback that we heard from you all. So we're doing that very intentionally. Another really cool thing that's been happening this month that I have been seeing more of is that people are actually sharing their pacing trackers with us. As we talk about self-pacing on the podcast, people are reaching out to us on social media, on Slack, and also in email with their pacing trackers. So I'm going to be linking a bunch from three teachers. We have one from Andrea, who's got sort of a cool mix of a game board and a more traditional spreadsheet type of tracker. If you look at it, it's kind of like a, like I think it's called like a Kanban, where you sort of move the kids' names along, but it's a spreadsheet. Um, very cool. Sarah has a pacing tracker that is unlike any I've ever seen. It's sort of just like a checklist, but it's really cool how she's broken it out into must and aspire to do's and um, definitely something worth checking out. So that's linked below. And another teacher, Hillary, uh, she makes student facing individual trackers, but each subject is unique. So she has a bunch of different kinds of trackers for her different school subjects. And that's also really cool. So lots of cool stuff to browse there in the show notes. I'll link all of this. So yeah, I'm just so happy to be reading all this feedback, seeing all these materials that teachers are sending in. Keep all that coming. Use the email address, use social, use Slack, send us this stuff. We love even just a little comment. I I love reading it. It makes me, it brings me a little bit of joy every time I see one of those little comments in our email. Moving on to the Q&A portion here. I have a, a little surprise for you all, which is that I'm joined by Kareem, none other than Kareem Farah who I'm sure all of you know, 
who Kareem is. Um, he and I are going to tackle some of these questions that you all have been sending. And I, I'm just really excited for this because Kareem and I haven't done an episode together for several months. Um, and I think the last episode we did together was a Q&A as well. So Kareem, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited to be here with you. Zach, it is a joy to be back. Um, I feel at home. I remember when we started this thing together um, more than a year ago at this point, I believe. Um, yeah. So super pumped to be here. Um, also great to hear this new segment about feedback and building community. I, I've always said that one of the coolest parts of the Modern Classrooms Project is that sense of community it creates with folks that are like-minded around um, thinking differently about instruction. So I love that there's an email and folks are sharing feedback and the feedback sounds fabulous and pacing trackers are being shared and something core to our approach, which is re building relationships is constantly being discussed. I listened to the podcast with Evan. It was absolutely fabulous. So excited to be here, excited to see how amazing this podcast has grown and pumped to answer some questions from the community. I hope to be popping in every now and then to do stuff like this as much as possible. Awesome. Yeah, we love, we love it. So well, and Zach, before we get started, how are you? Um, you know, I haven't I haven't talked to you in a few weeks, and I know, frankly, we're recording this in January of 2022, which is one of the tougher months in the last couple of years, based on all the conversations I've been having with teachers and leaders. So, how are you holding up? How are things going? Um, how's school been? Yeah, it is. It is tough. It is tough. I um, I feel relatively calm on a day to day basis. You know, something I've said a lot this year is that the easiest part of this school year, this 21-22 school year, at least in the U.S., uh, has been being in class with the kids. Um, there's a lot of instability. There's a lot of changes. There's a lot of subs. There's a lot of rooms being switched on us. There's a lot of things like that happening and probably more happening to the kids than are happening to the teachers. So when you're just in a class with the kids and they're watching their instructional videos or they're working through their practice activities or their, or their mastery checks, what have you. Uh, that's the time when I sort of feel like everything is normal. And that's sort of what I try and think about when I get stressed out is that, you know, when I'm in the classroom with the kids, as long as the videos are on the LMS, we're going to be fine. Um, there have been a lot of changes this year, though, and it is definitely a stressful year. Um, I am thankful for, for being able to implement this model and teach this way because of the the amount of times that we've gone virtual, switched back and forth between virtual, frankly, um, would have my head spinning if I was trying to keep modifying my content to be able to teach it online. But with modern classrooms, I don't have to do any of that. I just keep kind of chugging along. And um, yeah, but it's it hasn't been easy, but I feel like I'm doing all right. Yeah, no, it, it, <laughs> there's no way it's been easy. If it's been easy, something's wild. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's good to hear. We, we consistently hear that... Uh, the folks that do our model are able to handle some of the challenges of the moment a little bit better for the reason you just described. I think it creates, um, I mean, I think the easiest way to describe it is it sort of creates an avenue for continuous learning when everything else feels disrupted. Um, yeah. And when you don't need to worry that much about that, I think there's a little bit of relief that sets in. Um, and I sort of love what you said about just like the students being the part that's, honestly, like most relaxing. I'm not surprised to hear that. I feel like every single time there was something challenging or traumatic going on in the school building, it was, it was the students that always brought me down to earth. Um, so, uh, I'm glad you're, you're holding up. Okay. And to all the teachers out there, um, it's just sort of incredible what you all are doing and, and how you're kind of 
navigating these challenges. It's so, so unique. And, and we certainly at the Modern Classrooms Project are so appreciative of, of your all's capacity to be innovative at this time and and be persistent and continue to push students across the continuum of mastery. It's, it's really amazing. Well, I certainly appreciate that. Um, I'm sure many teachers definitely appreciate that. You want to tackle some of these questions? Let's do it. I am reading some of them now and I'm fired up about it and they're fabulous questions. So let's just fire them off. All right. The first question here says, how do you motivate students to do more than just the must do's? This is uh, from an, actually a question that Tony Rose received from an implementer at a partner school. So how do you motivate students to do more than just the must do's? Super interesting question. Um, and over the last like few months, I've been to a, a lot of modern classrooms, visiting a lot of our partners, um, Minnesota and Massachusetts. Um, and it's it's been really interesting to sort of see how people make the model their own. It's one of my favorite parts about doing site visits because I get to go and see just just how different modern classrooms can be, but also just how similar they are um, and like where the differences lie. I think this is a really good example of um, one of the tools and structures that we've created the Modern Classrooms Project that have a fair amount of variability depending on implementer and depending on student. So, you know, one of the things I would say is in a lot of modern classrooms, the kids actually don't know which lessons are must do, should do, and aspire to do. So one way to motivate students to do more than just the must do is to not actually tell anyone what the must do and the should do and aspire to do is and just put all the content out there and then excuse kids for should do's and aspire to do's on a need basis. Yes. Yes. So kind of on the fly. Exactly. Like that's how I did it in about 60% of my classes. And it was because in those 60% of my classes, I just had a really diverse set of learners. Um, very, very wide variability and just prerequisite skills. So it was just like a kind of an odd structure where I couldn't layer on top. Well, oh, must do's are 80%, should do's are 98%, you know, aspire to's are 100%. That, that wasn't actually enough differentiation. Some students truly were going to exclusively end up focusing on must do's in a unit, and other students were going to cruise through must do's and get all the way up to those aspire to do's pretty comfortably. So, isolating which ones were which actually just didn't really work. Instead, I had to be able to really personalize, like you said, and on the fly, tell kids they were excused for certain things. And, and that ensured that kids, you know, approached the, the work as if everything was a must do. And then things were kind of um, removed on a, on a personalized way. Um, so that's one idea. What about, what are your thoughts, Zach? Yeah, no, I, I agree. That resonates with me a lot. Like I can definitely think of some students who if they see the aspire to it's an immediate demotivation for them. It's like, Oh, I'm not doing that. Um, I think that for me, the way that I think about this is sort of more like, uh, a planning consideration. You know, if there's something that I want to make sure that my students do, I'll make it a must do. And my aspire to do is if you look at the scope of one of my units, they're way out there. Like they're kind of like Mr. Diamond's pet project activity that doesn't really actually even matter. It's just sort of an extension. Uh, it can be fun. Like I want to let my, my students take the things that they're learning and apply them to what they already know. And what I mean by that is like, if we're learning about what a quarter note is, I'll teach them about quarter notes in a, in a context that applies to their project. But then the aspire to do's will be something like go off and listen to whatever song that you like and tell me what you hear in that song that relates to what we've learned about quarter notes. Um, and so that's not, it's, I don't, work that hard to motivate them to do that because if they don't do it 
their project won't suffer. Like they're they're still going to do in all the must do's. They're going to do the absolute essentials for the project and the aspire to do is something totally separate. And so I don't actually concern myself too much with it because the way I've planned out and the way I've classified the different types of lessons, I will force them to do the must do's or if they don't do them, they'll have a lower grade. Like they'll not do the must do's. Um, and if it's an aspire to do, I don't feel strongly about motivating them to do it if they're not motivated already. And some students definitely are. And in some cases I, I will, like if a student's not behind and they get to a day where an aspire to do lesson is on pace, I'm not going to let them skip it just because they don't feel like it. You know, they're going to be sitting there in my classroom for 50 minutes doing nothing. Um, and so I'll tell them, no, you can't skip it unless you're behind on it. And I don't know if that motivates them to do it, but it does get them to do it because they have nothing else to do. But but I definitely agree also, like I don't identify the should do activities, which are smaller pieces like within my lessons. I don't tell them like, if they're taking too long on something, I'll just go over and be like, why don't you skip this part? Just do this for me. And I'll give you the, the mastery check. Like I'll give you the, I'll give you the check on the tracker. Um, so withholding that information strategically for those students who see should or aspire to do and think optional. I, I actually really like that. It's a good idea. Yeah. You know, like what it comes down to, to me is usually a classroom culture and relationship building opportunity. When I had a student, and this doesn't work every time. And like the amount of imperfection that comes with teaching, I just can't stress that enough, right? It's like the the greatest imperfect science ever. So some of this stuff just doesn't work for certain students and you just keep trying different things. But I always looked at a student who wasn't tackling should do's and aspire to do's that truly had the time and the capabilities to do that in the moment as a total opportunity to have a great discussion. Yeah. And just be like... Why? Like, what's, why are you choosing not to be your best self in this moment? I do think if you really want to figure out what the core source of the challenge is there, you got to execute on that front and really just have the one on one discussion, build the relationship with the student, and try to get them to understand why they should be pushing themselves to be their best self. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also, you know, you might not be able to motivate them, right? It's, it's okay. If they don't want to do the aspire to do on a day that they're maybe it's the last period of the day and they've had a long day or something, maybe they're just not feeling it that day. If you look at my pacing tracker, you'll see certain aspire to do lessons that every student has skipped. Um, And I don't like beat myself up over that because sometimes they just don't want to. Sometimes it's a bad lesson that I planned poorly um, and it happens. So, you know, that's why that's why at first I mentioned planning too. like if. You want to make sure students do something. If it's that important to you, then just make it a must do and make sure that they do it. Totally. Well, I think you bring up a really good point, which is, is it a pattern or is it in in a one-time thing? Yeah. If it's a one-time thing, like I really wouldn't press the issue, right? And honestly, I think you gain a lot of credibility with students when someone tackles all the must-dos and is having a bad day and you're like, look, it's all right. Just like, you know, take a deep breath, relax. If it's a pattern, then it's time to address whether, you know, a student is really maximizing what they can do in the classroom. That's that's a great point. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Shall we move on to the next question? Let's do it. I can ask this one. What are the pros and cons of having a digital progress tracker and a physical progress tracker? And this is a question also from an implementer at one of our school and district partners. Um, Zach, super curious what you what you have to say about this one. <laughs> well, I uh, I'll link my my anonymized pacing tracker. I think that the digital progress tracker is like in every way superior. Um, And one of the reasons that I say that is because as a teacher who now teaches in multiple different classrooms, 
and has other teachers teaching in, in the same classrooms that I do on other periods, I can't wrap my head around how I would manage a physical progress tracker. Um, unless it was like an individual one that was printed out for students. And I want to be able to update it myself and see it whenever I want to see it. So I don't think I could do that either. And that's why a single spreadsheet that has all eight of my class sections in it is clearly for me the the way to go. Um, I've also talked about how I use mail merges to send data from my uh, progress tracker to parents or guardians and also to students. Um, it, I use it to calculate grades. Like I use it to project summative grades. It's, I, do, I do all kinds of spreadsheet things. And those are the pros for me of having a digital progress tracker. I, I can imagine in maybe in an elementary setting where a teacher is in one room with the same kids, that could be a an, an opportunity to use a physical progress tracker like on the wall where it's the same kids coming into the same room every day. Um, and there's just sort of more life to that, right? You can de- de- decorate it and put the kids' names or they can you can put their pictures or things like that. Um, and uh, that's not my experience. I don't teach that way. So I'm only sort of speculating, but that would be my sense of what the pros would be of a physical progress tracker. But in my case, the cons of having to manage the paper and the the like, you know, display in multiple classrooms and not know what's happening to the displays when I'm not there and other, other classes are happening that those cons outweigh the the pros for me in a big way. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to, so I'm going to play, I'm not going to play devil's advocate. I'm just going to present the um, alternative. Yeah. Sorry. Let me, let me clarify. I'm not against physical progress trackers at all. Totally. I think they're very cool and I've seen lots of pictures of awesome ones, but in just, I'm talking about my personal situation as a teacher currently this year who doesn't have the same room for every class. It, it's hard for me to imagine using a physical tracker. A hundred percent. So, I mean, I think some of the biggest benefits of the physical progress tracker are as follows. First, if you're using a personal tracker or a game board, I think there's something really powerful about kids being able to track their own pace. And the game board structure makes it a little bit more personal and structured to the actual student themselves. And I think them being able to get pulled off the computer, going back on the computer, being pulled off the computer and all that good stuff really matters. Um, I think that's critical. I think it's important to understand that dynamic. Um, And I think it's great too for strengthening certain elements of executive functioning. Like I think kids being able to sort of set many goals and like look at the physical tracker and be able to isolate that can be very powerful as well, especially the teachers that use checklists. Is it integral? Do you need to do it? Absolutely not. I didn't have a physical tracker when I ran ran a modern classroom myself. So I think there's the game board physical trackers and and the checklist models, and that can be really powerful. And they're very, very popular at the younger grade levels because at the younger grade levels, like there's a huge asset there um, to being able to be structured in that way. The other side of it, to your point, is the physical trackers that are in rooms. Now you have to have your own room, obviously, to be able to do that. But there's another piece there about pulling kids off of the technology and being able to engage in the physical space that I create that create kind of natural breaks from the tech that can be super powerful as well. So, you know, I think the pros of of the virtual ones and the digital ones is they're accessible anytime, anywhere, and they're very, very convenient. I think the pros of the physical ones, if they're game boards and, and, and like personal ones, is A, they're personal. They're certainly not public and, and they're for every single student and can be brought home and shared with parents, you know, in the physical sense. Um, so can the digital ones. But I think there's something powerful about the physical piece. And there's some lo- ways you can loop in that executive functioning piece. Um, and then, you know, just having the physical ones in the classroom can just be fun. They're cool. They can be magnets. They can be pictures of kids' faces. They can be color-coded in creative ways. And I think it just like livens up the room. Um, but all those things are extra, right? And frankly, my classroom 
from a, from a visual standpoint, I was always like not a particularly creative teacher. So my classroom didn't have those like very cool elements to it. But I've been to some of the best modern classrooms out there that I've ever seen. And they use the physical space beautifully. And one of the core elements that they use beautifully is those physical pacing trackers. And very often in the K to eight setting is where I see that come to life. Yeah, I, I guess also like <laughs> it depends on what kind of person you are, what kind of teacher you are. You know, I I like to tinker around in the spreadsheets and I like to do formulas that make cool things happen. And like that's how I express my creativity <laughs> in a spreadsheet, whereas some teachers do really amazing things with like wall displays, you know, um, but I'll, I like I guess. Do the one that feels more comfortable for you, because I have definitely had like moments where I'm I've I figured out some new formula or something, and I show the kids. I'm like, check this out. This is so cool. It says how many lessons you did and how many more you need to do, and they're like, all right, Mister Diamond. But it's still kind of like a fun little moment in class that is sort of like my version of having a cool, pretty display, which I could never make because I'm not that kind of creative. Um, but I express that through a digital progress tracker and maybe I'm just a total nerd, but like it's still fun sometimes. I think that both have pros and cons. Both work fine in any kind of modern classroom um, unless there are like spatial constraints like what I was talking about, which would make it very hard to have a physical progress tracker um, or at least not like a physical public tracker for the entire class. Totally. And so, yeah, just go with the one that you feel like works for you and the way that you feel like you track the best because the data is really what matters i think at the end of the day definitely um, but kareem you're absolutely right that like those physical big cool displays especially in younger grades i think add a, a really cool element to the sort of environment to the physical space of the classroom too absolutely okay let's go on to the next question here um this is a question that came up on the facebook group in response to episode 71, which was the first episode of the season where we talked about where Tony Rose and Meg talked about what self-pacing is. So the question says, what do you consider a lesson? This is a really good question, by the way. I like this question a lot. What do you consider a lesson? Is the notes one lesson, the practice a separate one, etc.? If not, how do you make sure students go back to revise when the pacing tracker just says lesson one and not lesson one notes, lesson one practice, etc.? I love this question. Yeah, me too. You know, because oftentimes the best questions are like in some ways the simplest, right? Which is like, what is a lesson? Mm -hmm. What I would say generally is that if, if all the activities connect to one core skill being mastered, I usually consider that to be one lesson. So, you know, a video, a set of notes, a mastery check, an assignment, to me, if they're all connecting to the same skill and that mastery check encapsulates all that was done to get there, that's one lesson. That lesson has multiple parts. And if you want to create a checklist structure so that you isolate all those parts so kids are super clear on what needs to be tackled, fabulous. But I would say that that whole sort of series right there makes one lesson and that has multiple parts. There's the sort of digesting some of the direct instruction that might be coming through the instructional video. There's the practice component of that lesson. There's the mastery check component of that lesson. There might be a collaborative element to that lesson. But all that to me comprises one lesson. And I think, you know, as people think about, well, how do I structure this? Is this one lesson? This is, is this two lessons? I think one of the greatest benefits of our model is you shouldn't actually really obsess over that too much. You should just say, hey, what's, what's a logical amount of a skill to be teaching students at once. 
I remember trying to fit like really complicated concepts into a 60 minute period and then really simple concepts as far as like the sort of scope and sequence into that same 60 minute period because I was teaching traditionally and felt like I was lecturing and it felt silly, right? In when I taught using this model, one lesson sometimes took kids only 20 minutes and then another lesson could take kids, you know, 120 minutes. And it was still just one skill each, but depending on the skill, there was just a different level of rigor, a different level to, you know, what was going on in the assignment and how much the assignment required. And that was totally okay. And I felt comfortable with that. So I didn't have to kind of chunk content in these arbitrary time frames. So that's how I would answer the question. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I Something that you said uh, made me think of a lot of progress trackers that I've seen that that do sort of like group together multiple smaller components of a lesson sort of under that umbrella. Sarah's tracker that I'm linking in the show notes that I talked about before in the feedback section looks like that, where you see lesson one, and then by the side of lesson one, sort of in the same row, it says, check in with the teacher, practice, and mastery check. All three of them are sort of checkboxes within the lesson one uh, row. And so like you can totally do that in a pacing tracker and keep track of them. Personally, in my own unit planning, I think that a lesson ends with a mastery check. So anything that happens before the mastery check for lesson three is part of lesson three. Um, I know some teachers will do multiple lessons and then like a master check that covers multiple lessons. I personally would consider that to be more like a summative, but that's just how I've conceived of this. Yeah, I guess, I don't know if the question is getting more at like conceptually, what is it? Or like, how do you keep track of these things? You know, if you want the students to go back and revise notes and not like the practice activity, then I guess you'd have to keep track of both separately, which is fine. You can totally do that by adding another row or adding another checkbox. Um, but conceptually, I, I agree with what you said. Everything that's related to a single skill or subject or topic is a lesson. Yep. I think we're aligned on that. I think that's the most common way it's done. And by the way, some lessons, I mean, I know some science teachers in particular whose lessons, you know, one lesson can last a week, right? Because it's one skill and they're tackling multiple components of that lesson over the course of that um, uh, week-long span of time. So it's totally normal to have lessons take a while and also totally normal for lessons to be super truncated. Yeah, you'll see, I've seen a lot of this in uh, project-based units that I see from my mentees when I'm working with them. Like their, their unit might be really long, but you know, we always say this, it's good to break up those long units into smaller chunks for self-pacing so they might have like lesson 1a lesson 1b and lesson 1c on the tracker and they're different activities and maybe they each have different notes or different practice problems or something like that but uh it's all lesson one and so you can think about it that way too but at the end the lesson one mastery check is what it is and it's all what they've done in that lesson but it's like a sort of a a shorter self-pacing sort of sprint than the entire unit, which might take, I don't know, four weeks, right? Because that's a long time to self-pace over and kids can lose the thread a little bit. Yep. Absolutely. Let's jump to the next one. This is a, um, a question that comes up every now and then. And I think it's a, a really interesting one, which is how do you combat cheating? Um, this particular teacher said, uh, we're seeing some people cheating using others' notes or just copying someone else's notes and not watching the video in a math class. I'm seeing some cheating on mastery checks. Um, curious what you think here on Zach, and then I certainly have some thoughts. Yeah, um, I would say that the mastery check is generally the the place where I can catch cheating uh, on the other aspects anyway. Like a, a student has to take their own mastery check, and if they can't pass it, they I don't care if they cheated or not. Like they didn't learn the lesson, and so they've got to go back and revise. Um, if they're cheating on the mastery checks, I don't know. I, I, I will sit down with them 
and talk to them about the mastery check that they submitted to me and see if I can sort of tease out what they know and what they don't know. And if they understand it, I might not be too concerned if it's clear that they just copied another student. Like a lot of students that I have work in groups and they're doing a group project and the mastery check is to submit a screenshot of something. So if some kid just takes a screenshot of the other partners who's done all the work, right? That I consider to be cheating. And I'll pull them over and be like, okay, explain this to me, explain this to me, draw an arrow on your slides to this thing that I want you to understand. And if they can't do it, I will ask them to go back and and revise the lesson. I guess the buck stops at the mastery check, really, because that's where they have to show me what they know. And if they collaborate before the mastery check, I can't imagine how they could possibly cheat because I let them, I let them collaborate before the mastery check, pretty much with complete freedom. So that's not an issue. And on the mastery checks, I just deal with it sort of on a case by case basis. If I don't think a kid knows something, even though they submitted a correct mastery check, I will talk with them. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I think this is one of those times where you as an educator, you do want to create the conditions to ensure that cheating is not happening on the mastery checks. Whether it's a mastery check zone in your class, whether you use mastery check days, whether you're really structured about what resources kids have, like whether you keep mastery checks behind your desk and only give them out on certain times, whatever structure you want to use to, and color-coded paper is really popular. Whatever structure you want to use, I think you really want to hone in and drill down on the mastery check being where you stop students from cheating. It's also why I'm a huge fan of mastery checks being done in person. And if possible, not even digitally. I'm a pretty big fan of that. Not that you have to do it that way. There's some really efficient digital tools to, to run mastery checks. And if those work, fabulous. And there's a way to sort of constantly see new problems and new uh, deviations, fabulous. Um, or if it's just really hard to cheat on a particular mastery check because it's your own original thoughts, then great, use the digital tools. But I have sometimes used kind of the physical space, the in-person space and physical mastery checks because it made it even easier for me to create the conditions where cheating couldn't happen. So that's where I really directed my attention around the academic integrity piece. If students are copying each other's notes, if students are not really doing assignments to their to their full potential and they're kind of crossing the line between collaborating and cheating, and then they don't perform well on the mastery check, that's the teachable moment. Yeah, I would do that all the time. I'd pull a kid down and be like, this mastery check is not right, but how is your assignment perfect? And the student starts to realize, like, I'm not going to get through this class um, if I keep trying to cheat my way through to the mastery check because I'm not going to get the mastery check right. And if I don't get the mastery check right, I just can't be successful in this classroom. And that's super powerful because you're teaching the student that right then and there that you don't not cheat because you're told not to cheat. You don't cheat because you don't actually learn the skill. You can't replicate what you're, what you're hoping to replicate in a novel environment. You're not going to achieve what you want to achieve. And that's a life lesson, not just a, a lesson in a particular classroom. So that's my thoughts on that one. All right. We have one last question. This is, this is a really good question, too. Uh, this is from a mentee who is currently enrolled in the virtual mentorship program. It says, how is a pacing tracker different than a grade book? I love this question. And I think the biggest thing to really like to adjust with a pacing tracker is it's an instantaneous snapshot of progress within a short span of time. And that is super different, in my opinion, than the overarching set of assignments, mastery checks, and grades that comprise someone's overall performance in a course over a quarter or a year or a semester. 
And I think the big distinguishing factor there is a student can be behind pace on the progress tracker, but we're rocking the class overall because in that moment, in that unit, in that chunk of self-pacing, they've fallen behind. And similarly, a student could be way ahead in one chunk of skills, but not really taking care of business in a previous unit or previous set of skills. So their overall grade doesn't show that they're crushing it and, you know, ahead of pace, but it does show that in that individual moment. And I think what it does is it creates a, the pacing tracker creates a, a fresh start opportunity um, and ensures that kids can constantly be moving up that ladder. The grade book has certain limitations and constraints, right? You did something, now you're on a different unit and that was your performance. With that being said, I always told kids that if we're in a grading period and the grading period hasn't closed, you can always turn in assignments and show mastery on skills from previous units and I'll still give you credit for it. So, um, you know, the, the really simple way, in my opinion, to distill it is the pacing tracker is a instantaneous snapshot that's constantly moving and changing. And the grade book, you know, has historical data compiled over multiple units that has a cumulative grade that it spits out. And kids can go back to those old kind of assignments, lessons, and skills um, outside of the scope of normal class time if it's in a previous unit. But a lot of those, you know, are in the gradebook until they're changed. Um, and the pacing tracker creates a really nice space for fresh starts. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. I didn't think about it that way, but the idea of the fresh start, I, I guess, like, as I thought about this, I was trying to distinguish them in my head, like, conceptually. But it occurred to me that there's a much simpler way to think about this, which is that a pacing tracker doesn't show grades. Like, it's not a grade book, uh, at least in my class. It just shows checks and R's, meaning that you need to revise. Like, those aren't grades. Uh, once a student has a check, it's 100% or 0%, right? Like, there's there's no there's no middle ground. And so what it shows is something different than how they performed on the assessment or on the task. You know, the grade that I give at the end of a unit is a summative grade like I like I gave in traditional teaching. My students make a song and, and I and I grade the song. <laughs> and that's that's based on a rubric that I use that I've always used and it's very well documented. I give grades based on certain criteria. But progress is an entirely different metric. It says what they've done and what they haven't done. It's not a grade. And so I, I have I have a grade book. Like they're different documents, you know? And so to me, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the distinction is actually pretty clear in my head. The pacing tracker shows what they have done. And if they've done it, they have 100% on it. They have an A plus or whatever the case may be on what they've done. Uh, and a grade book doesn't show that. The grade book assesses how they did on it. And I, I see a very clear distinction there. I think that is so spot on. I mean, you know, I always used to say that the best gut check to use with your pacing tracker is does it truly reflect students' effort? Because if you're leveraging a pacing tracker and the lesson classifications correctly, then a student who is trying their best and working really, really hard should be on pace. You should have the systems and structures to ensure that they're on pace or at least close to pace. Um, but if a student is like doing everything they can, but they're perpetually off pace, then the pacing tracker is reflecting it, it like is, is sort of a little bit too restrained or restrictive um, and hasn't actually created the flexibility to provide a snapshot that largely shows the effort students are putting in a class to progress through the unit. So I think that's also a really important way to think about um, a pacing tracker, which is the amount of effort students are putting in to a particular unit. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a really cool question that got me thinking about 
like just conceptually high level stuff in a different way than I did before. Totally. I mean, I think it's a very important question. There, the two things are very, very distinct, but isolating the why behind that is critical. So I love that question as well. Yeah. And that's a great last question too. A great way to close this out. Um, and man, it is <laughs> having this conversation with you on the podcast brings me back to 2020. Um, we haven't talked for so long and I feel like old school podcasting now. I know so. it's absolutely fabulous, Zach. And thanks for having me jump on. And hopefully I'll jump on more, especially on these Q and A's. I think these are super, super fun. And it, it's always fabulous to answer challenging and thought provoking questions from our community. It's what I love to do. So yeah, thanks for having me on, Zach. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me. It's been great. Uh, listeners, remember, you can always email us. We love that feedback. The email address again is podcast at modernclassrooms.org. And you should definitely take a look at the show notes for this one. You can find them at podcast.modernclassrooms.org slash 74, which is the episode number. Um, there are a bunch of pacing trackers that teachers have shared with me, and I'll just link them down below. So definitely check those out. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week, and we will be back next week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.